I think that the the rate of building, um, when you look at the dense areas, um, downtown, Pioneer Square, South Lake Union, those are places where density really makes sense and you want to build as tall and as dense as you can, both for residential and for corporate space. When you look at some of the areas, like uh, we live near Capitol Hill, there are streets and neighborhoods that don't make a lot of sense to have the kind of density that we're having. Seattle is changing rapidly, and many of its residents have opinions on the development they see around them. This is the Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, and today's episode focuses on building density in the city. I've got an in-depth interview with City Council Member Mike O'Brien, University of Washington architecture professor Rob Pena, and a land-use planner with over 10 years of experience, Teresa Greer. Previously on the Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from Vinayak Hegde, Chief Marketing Officer of Groupon, which opened and expanded its Seattle office. They're living here. They're buying houses. They, they are adding to the commute. Um, um, I mean, it's definitely adding to the economy uh, and also adding to traffic. You heard from Marty Hartman, Executive Director of Mary's Place. We had somebody, a family of four, just yesterday, who re- was raised $170 a month. Most of us would say, okay, okay, I can suck that up. Let me do that. But for many, many of us, we cannot. And so that forced them to have to leave their home. You heard from Steve Smith, a worker who builds patios and decks in Seattle. I can't even live in, I can't even afford to live in the place where I build, build for people anymore. So. You heard from city council member Shama Sawant. Seattle is losing what makes it Seattle. I mean, what people love about Seattle is partly the, the, lands, the natural landscape. But for a lot of people, what matters is their diversity. And in the last episode, we examined the effect of growth on the character and culture of Seattle. You heard from Hazel Margaritis. You know, uh, well, obviously rent's gone up. Um, I lived in a house up on Capitol Hill that was built in 1902. Um, it was two bedroom for, what, $600, something like that, for 13 years. That's now part of the teardown and build up into a multi-unit complex. Um, so it's pretty much happening all over town, you know, going from neighborhood to neighborhood. I won't even recognize where I'm at some days. You heard from Dan Morgan. I, I just would like it to not be a city that only caters to the super rich. And uh, it seems like it's, it's heading that way. And that's, I don't think that's good for the city. It's not good for people like us, artists, trade, tradespeople, musicians. You know, all the things that make a city great, um, that give it character, that give it culture. You heard from Sam Farazano. We have to be integrated and we have to work as a community to come together and, and really look at, like, what do we want as a neighborhood to grow into the future? I want to expand arts and creativity and vibrancy here. Though Seattle's growth brings a wealth of opportunity, it also presents challenges. We've heard from residents about some of these challenges. Challenges for those hoping to buy their first Seattle home. Challenges for those hoping to be able to rent in Seattle. And challenges for those struggling to have shelter at all. There are also challenges for the people of Seattle hoping to preserve character, culture, and diversity in the city. As we transition to today's episode, the city is building its housing stock in hopes of easing some of these challenges. According to the Office of Planning and Community Development, Seattle permitted a net gain of almost 7,000 new housing units in 2015. Just to put that number into perspective, this number is roughly the same as it was in 2009, but more than three times the number of housing units added in 2011. As a result of the recent increase in the housing stock, 
Seattle has become the 10th most dense city in the country, with almost 8,000 people per square mile in 2014. And the city is getting denser. The question becomes, where should the density be added? In today's episode, you'll hear three perspectives on where to increase Seattle's housing stock. My first interview is with city council member, Mike O'Brien. I'm here with Councilman Mike O'Brien. Uh, he's been on the city council since 2010. Mike, thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here. Uh, first off, before we begin, I want to thank you for your service. Uh, and I'd imagine it's uh, no small sacrifice to be a public official here. So thank you. It's, a, it's, it's both a sacrifice and an honor. And I'll tell you that I do it because the upside certainly uh, significantly outweighs the downside. So I, I enjoy the work and try to do the best work I can. Do you mind actually sharing a little bit about your motivation to serve the public? I went to Utah Business School. I graduated in 95. Um, is that right? <laughs> 97. And um, was the CFO at a law firm for about 10 years. So my career was actually not um, in politics or anything political. But I've been a Sierra Club volunteer for about 15 years. And through that work, I got more and more engaged in local politics and climate change and other um, environmental sustainability issues. And um, Ultimately, I was the chair of the state chapter of the uh, Washington State Sierra Club group um, and uh, worked on some high-profile transportation campaigns. And that led me to, to feeling, uh, when I woke up in the morning, did I want to go to work and balance a checkbook for the attorneys I worked for, or did I want to go out and fight for uh, ways to reduce climate change? And the latter was where my passion was, and that's when I made a kind of career shift. And now one of your passions uh from the outside, it seems to be is backyard cottages. Uh, do you mind sharing your vision for backyard cottages? You bet. Um, so the work around backyard cottages actually starts with um, a, a bigger level question of how do we accommodate more and more people living in our community? Um, we've seen a ton of growth here in Seattle um, in the last few years, um, both a ton of jobs created and a lot more people wanting to move here. Um, and with that, there's been a lot of new construction. Some of that has been very disruptive to certain neighborhoods, um, which creates a lot of angst. Um, you know, a lot of that's going to continue to happen. We can probably do a lot better job how we manage growth. But we're also looking for kind of more creative ways we can grow that both allows, um, well, my goal would be to create some new housing types that hopefully are more affordable than some of the things that are happening and hopefully also less disruptive to some of our communities. And backyard cottages seem to be a type of thing. They're already allowed throughout the city, frankly, but there are a number of barriers um, that we hear from a lot of people who want to do it that just can't quite make it work because it's so cumbersome to do. And so we hope to make it a lot easier and streamline that process. Um, and see, you know, a lot more people with an option to build them. They're, um, they're, they're small, they're living in a small footprint, it's good on the environment. Often they can happen in neighborhoods and no one even notices. Um, they allow people a lot more flexibility. You know, you might not be able to afford a house, but if you could rent out your backyard to someone, now also it's affordable, maybe you've lived in your house for 30 years, and um, you know, your kids have gone off to school, you can move into a backyard cottage and rent out your main house. I mean, there's so many different options for how they can be great, and I hear that from a lot of community members that are very excited about it. Describe the socioeconomic profile of the, the type of person who would benefit from the existence of a backyard cottage, or the, ex the existence of more backyard cottages in Seattle. You know, so um, one would be, um, you know, imagine a, a, a couple with a family living in a single family home. They've lived there for 10 years. Their kids are in elementary school or middle school. Um, if it was easy for them to build a backyard cottage and someone did all the work and math and said, hey, here's, you know, 
go to this website, pick out the design you like, we'll have it built in three months, go to this bank, you borrow this much money, you can rent it for X, your payments are gonna be less than that. And now they have um, a young grad student going to UW who can live there, maybe help out with the kids a little bit or at least have some interaction, um, make a little extra money, provide a housing opportunity for that person. That's one, that's one kind of okay. scenario. Um, but you also hear a lot of folks who their kids might move into them or uh, a senior might move in them and have a family live in the house and now they have someone keeping an eye on them. Um, so there's a ton of scenarios. You hear about families that um, want to bring, like a mother-in-law, literally. <laughs> you know, my parents are out of town, but I need them to come here and live closer to me, but I don't want them under my roof. This is a way that they can be independent still, but we can keep an eye on each other. Um, I heard of a young guy who was trying to buy a house and the city couldn't afford it, but he bought a house that he could do a backyard cottage on and he was able to finance it to build the backyard cottage. He could live in the backyard cottage, rent out the main house, and now he could afford the mortgage. And five years from now, when hopefully he has more income, maybe he wants to get married, have kids, he's, he's into the real estate game now as opposed to trying to catch up. Lots of different scenarios. And then in terms of the, the people who could rent it, how much do these usually rent for, or what kind of income do you, are you targeting for the people who would benefit from the additional housing supply? You know, um, there's, we don't have a ton of data, um, so my data on what they rent for is largely anecdotal talking to people. Um, one thing that I see is folks say like, oh, you know, if you had a one bedroom studio that was relatively new and well done, you could easily rent that for $2,000 in a neighborhood. That probably doesn't get at the affordability level we're hoping to get at. What I often hear, um, well, one thing we hear is a lot of folks that use them for Airbnbs, and that's something that I think we need to address because the whole idea of um, making it easier to build backyard cottages is not to kind of bring hotels into our neighborhoods. It's to make permanent housing for folks. So there's other legislation that we'll be working on this summer around that. Um, but I often hear from people that have a backyard cottage that, um, you know, I only need to rent it for 1200 bucks to cover my costs, and I can get someone in there I really like. Um, and, and then this person, you know, oftentimes, oh, they live there for two or three years, they're kind of part of the family, you know, they've watched my kids grow up. Um, and so it's, it's not, you know, subsidized housing in a way that the city is subsidizing or they're income restricted, but oftentimes you hear stories where folks are like, renting it below market because it covers their costs and they don't need to make a big profit on it. It's just something they can do in the community they feel good about and right. it benefits their life. Do you mind summarizing the changes that, that you envision? Sure. Um, uh, these are all driven by things that we've heard from community members who've wanted to do it. So one is right now you can either do a backyard cottage or a mother-in-law basement unit in the house, but you can't have both. And so the uh, draft legislation um, comes out in the middle of May, um, will propose allowing you to do both. Um, one is a parking requirement. Um, uh, currently, in most scenarios, you have to provide an additional off-street parking spot. If you don't already have an off-street parking spot, sometimes you have to do two parking spots. Um, we're proposing to get rid of that parking requirement. Um, Entirely? Entirely, right. yeah. Um, one of the things that happens, uh, you see this a lot, is to put in an off-street parking spot, you have to go in and make a curb cut on the street for the driveway for the parking spot, and so you eliminate an on-street parking spot to make an off-street parking spot. You know, all you've really done is spend a bunch of money and privatized a parking spot, which doesn't benefit anybody. So um, that's not always the case, but we're trying to um, make that easier. Um, there's a requirement around owner-occupied 
or owner occupancy of one of the units. So if you, um, you know, if I were to build one, I have to stay living in either my main house or the backyard cottage, but I can't rent both out. Um, there's been a couple concerns that have been raised around that in the community. Occasionally you hear folks saying, I want an owner there, I don't want a bunch of renters next to me. I um, bristle at that, I rent, you know, over half the people in Seattle are renters. I think renters are just as good neighbors as owners. Um, and so to discriminate against renters or owners are different. The other concern we hear is I don't want speculative developers coming into my neighborhood, buying a house, building a backyard cottage that doesn't take into the, any of the neighborhood concerns and then flipping it for a profit. And so what the proposal is going to say is there's an owner occupancy requirement to actually build the unit and for a year after it's built to stay on site. Once that year is lapsed, you can rent out both units. And so we hear from a lot of folks like, hey, I don't plan to move, but if my job transfers me and I've just spent 150,000 building this unit, what, you know, now I'm gonna have to sell my house, I can't just rent it out while I'm transferred overseas for five years. Um, and so I think that addresses the concern about um, someone who's invested in the community will be the one building it, they won't be spec. Um, but it gives the owner some flexibility. Those are the main changes. We're also, um, they're currently restricted to be 800 square feet. We're talking about letting them be 1,000 square feet. Um, there's a very variety of kind of height differences from kind of 15 to 18 feet tall, depending on the width of the lot. We're gonna allow one or two more feet of height so that um, it makes it a little easier to have a, a main floor plus kind of a sleeping loft with some headroom. Um, currently, if you build it above a garage, the garage square footage counts towards the overall square footage, which makes it almost impossible to build a unit that's livable above a garage. We're going to say the garage square footage counts separately. Oh, another thing we would allow, um, currently you can't put a backyard cottage on a lot less than 4,000 square feet. We would allow, or the proposal is to allow it down to 3,200 square foot lot. Um, so a couple of those types of things, it'll just make it easier to pencil out. Let's go into some details about uh, some of the things we were talking about. In terms of the lot coverage, is there going to be changes to no, how much the... No changes on the lot coverage. So the lot coverage, whether you have a single family home or a single family in Dadu, is still the same. I think it's no more than 65% of the lot can be covered. And so we're not changing those at all. And the idea is, you know, someone can build a single family home that's just, you know, a McMansion or whatever, a lot bigger, or they can keep their smaller home and build a small home in the backyard. And I think that's much better. I think it's um, often more appropriate for the scale of the community. It provides two housing units instead of one. They're more environmentally friendly. They're less expensive. All those good things. And then talk about how many people could live in the backyard cottage itself. Um, so there's no limit on how many people could live in the backyard cottage. There is an overall limit um, on how many people can live on a lot if not all of them are related. Okay. Um, and that's the current rule is... Um, if, if you're all related, there's no restriction. So if you have a 20-member family, all 20 of you can live on a lot. Um, if one of the people is unrelated, then there's a restriction that no more than eight people can live on a lot. And that, um, uh, I believe at this point, we're going to keep that in place for the whole lot. So a family of four um, could have a backyard cottage with two people and a mother-in-law basement with two people, and that would be the max for the lot would be eight, assuming that, they're, that someone in there is unrelated. Okay, so the, because on your website it seemed like there was some discussion as to how best to accommodate the fact that more people might be able to live in these three yeah. structures. That's not a part of the, the current legislation plan? We heard from a lot, some folks in some neighborhoods concerns. We, we thought about perhaps raising that to 12 if you have both. Um, there's some current concerns in some neighborhoods, frankly, around the University of Washington. 
where folks were worried about how this might be used to have, you know, 12 individual living on one lot and what that might feel like in the neighborhood. For the most part, where we see these happening is it's usually one or two people living in a backyard cottage. You know, at 800 square feet, there's not a lot of folks that have a kid. So I think we're comfortable with the eight limit. It may be in the near future we start hearing where that becomes a problem, but we haven't heard that as a huge issue right now, so we're probably going to leave that in place. What makes a backyard cottage different from a townhome or a duplex? Um, the, the square footage is a lot more restricted. Both for a mother-in-law unit and a backyard cottage, they can only be up to, you know, currently I believe 800 square feet. Mother-in-law might actually even be a little smaller. but um, And so the size differential. But there's some similarities too. I mean, um, sometimes people come up to me and say, uh, because last year in the hollow recommendations there was a, this idea of can we allow duplexes and triplexes in single-family zones. And my response was, well, it depends what you mean by duplex and triplex. If you're talking about a house with a unit in the basement and a backyard cottage as a triplex, I would like to explore ways to allow that to happen. If you're talking about three townhomes side by side um, that, you know, where you tear down the house, I'm not interested in that. I don't think the community's ready for that type of conversation yet. You know, three separate families living on a single family lot with three separate units feels a lot like a triplex, but it doesn't look like what we think of a, a developer building a triplex. And I think one of the differences there is, you know, is this going to, is it all of a sudden going to be profitable for developers to come in and buy single family homes, tear them down and rebuild something that they can then rent or sell? And folks are very concerned about um, now no one can buy a single family home in my neighborhood because they can't compete with developers who are willing to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars more for that house to redevelop it. So by doing it this way, I think we still get the benefit of perhaps tripling the density, but without that construction pressure and price pressure that we see when outside developers and investors come in. That's the hope. Some people have expressed con uh, concern or difficulty understanding how Backyard cottages and, and multiple living structures are consistent with the term single-family resident zone. Yeah. Uh, can you explain your views on that? Clearly not single-family. <laughs> um, I think the, the concept around single-family means different things to different people. I mean, there's nothing to prevent... Um, uh, me from having another family live in my house under one roof and we just share it. So that's multiple families living in the same structure. Um, and certainly multi-generational housing happens in our community, often with um, immigrant communities, but not exclusively. Um, that's one family with multiple generations. Um, I know people that couldn't afford a house, but two families went in and bought a house together and have figured out a way to share it. Now, whether they have two kitchens or one, or there's a separate entrance, to me, I say, does that really matter? And so I kind of question what the term single family means. Um, for me, it means a sense of what kind of the scale, shape, and form of development we expect in our community, but less like who's related to who and who lives where. And so um, if I felt, if I heard from people like, hey, we shouldn't call this single family anymore, we should rename it, um, fine, I'm happy to do that. What I hear from most folks is don't rename it. Let's just be a lot more flexible with the definition. Great. I'm okay with that, too. <laughs> and why don't they want to rename it? Well, I think folks worry about um, when it goes from kind of neighborhood-controlled changes in how we live, people tend to be comfortable with it. You know, you live across the street from me. You want to bring in someone to live in the basement. You're going to have to live above that person. You're going to make sure they're not jerks. 
And if they're nice people, awesome. Another nice person in the neighborhood, that's great. If a developer comes in and does something different, that starts to feel suspicious to folks. A lot of developers do good work, and a lot of landlords have good tenants and all that stuff. But um, I think the renaming it for some folks starts to feel like, now you're encroaching on what, what I think this means, and I'm worried this is like the camel's nose under the tent. The interesting thing is, when I talk to people about who are suspicious about duplexes and triplexes, and I say, well, what about backyard cottages and mother-in-laws? And almost inevitably, I hear, oh, no, I think that's great. In fact, I'm thinking of doing one myself. Okay. So there's, there's, for whatever reason, there's a distinction between, let's keep it sam- single family, even though we know it means three different families, but let's keep calling it single family, because that looks and feels different than what the intent of the other thing is. So in your vision, what do you think the impact of backyard cottages will be on the number of people living on these residential streets? Um, I think in a lot of neighborhoods, it probably won't make a difference at all. But I think there are some neighborhoods, especially ones that are near um, light rail investments, near transit, or near some of our great um, kind of neighborhood business districts that are these really desirable places to live. You'll see folks, um, I'm hoping we see, where on a block you might have four or five new units come up in the next couple years. And so that may add, um, you know, whatever, 25% more households. You know, often they're, they're one or 2% households, so it's not a huge difference, but a noticeable difference on people living on the street. I think the fear of some folks is what does that mean for like congestion? What does it mean for my ability to park on the street? You know, in a lot of these densifying neighborhoods, those are challenges that we're facing already anyways. But the other side of it means is like, hey, more opportunities to interact with people, often people at a different income level or a different social status, giving them opportunity to live in a neighborhood that they don't have access to today, um, which I think enriches all of our lives. It means more people that are engaged in the neighborhood, more eyes on the street. It means more restaurants and stores can be served and to be supported by more people living there. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of good things that I think can happen in the neighborhood. And I think, frankly, that type of housing style is the type of housing style that helps people interact with each other, as opposed to like separate entrances, drive my car into my garage and go upstairs and I don't have to be on the street. It's like, hey, we're shared garden space. Let's talk about this. Let's have a block party. Those things are all things that I think strengthen our neighborhoods, not weaken them. And I hope that backyard cottages do a lot of that. So there's probably going to be opinions on both sides of this matter. Yep, absolutely. Uh, uh, who should citizens contact or how should they express their point of view? You know, I would encourage them. Um, they can email me, mike.obrien at seattle.gov. They can email all city council members, uh, council at seattle.gov. That goes to all nine of our inboxes. Um, the legislation, um, as I said, will be introduced in the middle of May. Um, sometime in June, it should be for our first discussion in the Planning, Land Use, and Zoning Committee, which Councilmember Rob Johnson uh, chairs, but I'm a member of. Um, it may be that the legislation is wrapped up uh, by the end of July. It may take a couple of months, just depending on how complex it gets. If you could speak to somebody who opposed this legislation, and you just had a brief moment to, to try to express why they might want to think differently, what would you say? Um, at the end of the day, we have some big problems in our city um, around growth. Um, there, it's, you know, the great thing is we live in a very desirable city. The challenge is you know, hundreds of thousands of people want to move to cities like Seattle because we're a beautiful place. We're creating a lot of jobs. Um, people want to raise families here. And we as a community have to figure out how we address that. 
And we can choose to try to put up some walls and barriers, but that won't work. And it just means the housing prices can get really expensive and a lot of us will be priced out. Or we can find ways to accommodate some of the growth and new people moving here. And I would encourage folks to be open-minded and let's work together to find some opportunities. And I think this is one of the ones we should try. Mike, thank you very much for your service. Thank you very much for your time and your passion on this issue. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. One dimension on which to evaluate development is sustainability. To get a perspective on sustainable urban design, I turn to University of Washington architecture professor Rob Pena. I am joined here with Rob Pena. He's a professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Architecture. He's taught uh, ecological design and sustainability and urban ecology. And I've brought him here today to t- help us think about uh, those, those issues, urban design and, and sustainability as it relates to growth in Seattle. So Rob, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jeff. Rob, tell me a little bit about yourself, please. Well, I am an associate professor of architecture in the Department of Architecture at the University of Washington. Um, I came to Seattle about nine years ago um, to help with our department's movement towards making greener buildings. So I'm I'm sort of the Mr. Green Jeans in our department. And I've been doing this work partly with the Integrated Design Lab, a really great University of Washington lab on Capitol Hill, located in the Bullet Center, that does research and technical assistance we consult um, with design professionals, both here in Seattle and around the country, on making high-performance buildings. Um, I've been both practicing and teaching for about 30 years, and I've spent about a third of that time in architectural practice working on green buildings, and the other two-thirds of the time teaching. Tell me a little bit about why should we care about sustainability? Well, because, you know, the source of our good life is all of this clean air, fresh water, sunshine, wonderful climate that we have. It really is, it it is the source of our good life. So, of course, it should be central to our concerns. What are the criteria that we should be considering when evaluating whether plans for urban design or for building design, whether uh, they are sustainable for our environment? Yeah, you know, I think there's two fundamental things, and they're they're pretty different. And the first one would be, Um, When we think about assessing any urban situation, probably the best single yardstick is to say, is this good for children? If it's good for children, it tends to be pretty good for everyone else. And these are characterized by places that are safe, by places that are walkable, by places that have, you know, a good rich mix of amenities. They have parks and open places. They have stores. They have schools. They have residences. They have businesses. And, and these kind of walkable neighborhoods, walkable cities. The other one is energy. Now, my particular area in architecture has to do with the performance of buildings in terms of how much energy they use. But that's, I think, a really important lens to measure built environment on. And the reason for that is that while we think of transportation energy as a big important piece, and it is, and industrial uses of energy, and it is, But both of those account for about a quarter of the energy that we use. Nearly half the energy we use goes through our buildings. It's used to heat, cool, light, ventilate, and run all the stuff we use in our buildings. Three quarters of the electricity we use flows through our buildings. So buildings are really a conduit for energy. And we all know that most of that energy comes from burning fossil fuels, which is the major cause of climate change. So if we're gonna address climate change, we have to address building energy use. So I think it's really important to look at you know, how they perform. Now, 
climate change is a big, intractable, scary, tough issue for us to individually wrap our arms around. Um, a couple decades ago, when I first went to Scandinavia um, to study urban ecology, the Danes had, uh, I think, a nice way of framing environmental issues. And they put these things into two buckets. On the one hand, there's energy management. And energy management has to do with addressing one issue everywhere. So climate change is a great example of an energy management issue. It tends to fall in a large way to, to the realm of policy, to people jetting around the world, uh, making policy decisions, going to conferences, that kind of thing. But it really is one issue everywhere. On the other side is this idea of urban ecology, which is to address all of our resource flows, but in one space. And that can be at the scale of the home, that can be at the scale of the neighborhood or at the city. But the idea in, in this definition of urban ecology is to see how many of your resource flows can you address in one place. And so that's why the focus of a building is a pretty good one. Um, we can think about what are our resource flows in terms of energy, water, waste. It's the kind of thing that the experiment of the Bullet Center was really looking at was how can we close as many of these resource loops in one place? Not to be autonomous, but to see how we can address these in one place. And I think that's something that individuals can latch on. It's a lot more hopeful, because that's really where the rubber hits the road for us individuals. And then in terms of efficiencies, uh, do putting multiple people in one building does that decrease energy uses on a per-person basis, or does that increase energy usage? Yeah. You know, there's no doubt that there's efficiency by collecting and living in more apartment-like or connected house sort of situations. You know, in, in Europe for years, they've had a row house kind of thing. It's efficient because it reduces the surface-to-volume ratio, you know, the amount of exposure you have to the environment, susceptibility to heat loss or heat gain. Um, you use fewer materials. In Seattle, even in big buildings, our buildings tend to be dominated by a need for heating. And so if you can collect uh, people in, um, you know, more of a shared living kind of situation, apartments, condominiums, yeah, there's no doubt that there's resource efficiencies, both in terms of the building materials and in terms of the energy that those buildings use to heat and cool and ventilate themselves. So you've given us two criteria. Maybe apartments are, are good on the, the energy use. How about on the, the walking? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question because it begs the question, especially in a place like Seattle, do single-family residents in a more suburban setting um, make more sense, or does, would it be better if we lived um, in apartments in tighter proximity to each other? And I think there's some argument for both sides. So I mentioned before the criteria of children. You know, our, 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 our inner neighborhoods in Seattle work really well for kids. Um, I live in northeast Seattle. Um, there's a lot of great neighborhoods that have their centers. They have parks, schools, commercial areas. They're quite walkable. 
And as in my neighborhood, we're also right on a bus line. So we find we can get away with just one car and do most of our commuting with public transportation. And our kids have run of the neighborhood. So that's a good thing. It also makes it easier for us to have access to the sun to generate some of our own energy. So the photovoltaic panels on, on, a, on a house can get pretty close to providing all the energy that you need. So I think there are ways to really reduce your carbon footprint, live a pretty green lifestyle in a suburban context here in Seattle. But on the other hand, you know, again, there's just no doubt that um, collecting our resources, living in entire proximity has advantages, and it has some good advantages socially too. So we see the kind of development going on in Capitol Hill, which I think is a step in that direction. Six to seven story apartment buildings, a mix of uh, neighborhood uses, schools, um, commercial places. Um, that, that's a pretty rich model, and it's a model that's more like the kind of cities that I think are most sustainable around the globe. Cities like Paris, neighborhoods like Brooklyn. You know, these are six to eight story neighborhoods that have high density and high amenities, but, um, you know, are pretty efficient. Switching gears a little bit, if you could speak to the people of Seattle and tell them something that they could do to help support or encourage more sustainability here in Seattle and more sustainable design, what would you say? Well, you know, I started by saying that um, that buildings are the are central to both the problem and therefore to the solution. So there are all kinds of things that we can do as homeowners to get our home economics together. And we're, we all know that uh, energy conserving light bulbs help and that low flow shower uh, units help. Make sure you've got them and you know, make sure you're using them. So those are good things. Um, if you can afford to do it, consider putting photovoltaics on your roof. Um, what I've discovered in, in, in our work with buildings in Seattle is they don't have to be tilted very steeply. In fact, a, a flat photovoltaic panel will, you only pay about a 10% penalty for one that's tilted optimally to the south. So they're very forgiving here. We get most of our sunshine in the summertime. And so you can face them slightly west or south or flat, and you can gather a lot of energy. And, and you know, it, it used to be just a few years ago that they were prohibitively expensive. The, the price has been coming down about 10% per year for at least the last uh, 20 years. And so they're really becoming even with our low energy prices becoming very attractive and the payback time is short. So, you know, invest in photovoltaics. That's a good way to reduce your carbon footprint. And then, uh, you know, bicycle more and drive less. Do you have uh, any other thoughts on the growth of Seattle and, and how it affects our ability to maintain sustainability? Well, you know, I think we want to keep, as, as, as a city, uh, keep focusing on how we move more people around on the given infrastructure. You know, it's, 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 it's well documented that creating more roads to address that issue doesn't solve the problem for very long. So I think the movement towards, you know, light rail and, and good and better bus transportation is, is critical to all of this. I think when we have the conversation about density, I think, again, we have to be careful not to conflate the kind of single point density you get with a single high rise or even a group of high rises to the idea of looking at a neighborhood as a whole and recognizing that we can get really high urban densities 
um, at more like six to seven stories rather than 20 or 30 stories. And I think a, a lot of people probably would prefer living in a six to seven story neighborhood than a 20 to 30 story neighborhood. We can get really high urban densities at that scale and have really livable, walkable communities. And any concluding thoughts on growth in Seattle, the future, and what we can do to make it a better future? Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it is an exciting time. I think it's, it, it, it's, it's hard for all of us to see the Seattle we knew um, change. Um, but, of course, we also understand that, you know, these kinds of changes can be, can change for the better. Um, so we have to keep working for, you know, growth and densification and change that keeps pushing in a direction that, you know, benefits our children. And I think we can do that. You know, again, having had the chance to, to live in other cities around the country and around the world, um, you know, urban places can be really good places to live. They're good for uh, productivity, they're good for creativity, and they can be great for children. And if we keep children, children and energy as our yardsticks, uh, we'll move towards you know, better cities. Rob, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate your insight today. Thanks, Jeff. For an additional perspective on planning the future of Seattle, I turned to land use planner Teresa Greer. I'm here with Teresa Greer. Uh, Teresa has over 10 years of experience in land use planning and master planning. She studied at the University of Washington, where she got both her bachelor degree and her master's degree, when she studied urban planning, architecture, and international development. Teresa is also a lead accredited professional. So Teresa, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about your experience in planning? Sure. Uh, as you said, I'm a double dog, went to UW. Um, after that, I worked for an architecture firm right here in Seattle, in downtown, for a year and a half. And then I went to the Caribbean and Central America, worked for various nonprofits and a government in Central America doing public work. And then I came back to my roots, city of Portland, and worked for a private firm there, both doing policy planning on the public sector as well as private land use planning. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the projects you worked on as a land use planner in Portland? I was really lucky to work in Portland. Portland is um, as heralded as probably one of the most progressive cities in terms of land use. Really lucky to have worked there. One of my favorite projects in the city of Portland was the firm I worked for. We were hired by the city as well as Metro, which is equivalent to the Puget Sound Regional Council here in Seattle, to look at what are the costs of redeveloping a brownfield site within the city limits? So brownfield meaning a contaminated site that has significant cleanup cost, talking millions of dollars of cleanup cost. But yet, because it's in the city limits, it's one that has existing infrastructure and transportation versus developing a brand new greenfield site way out in the suburb, far from central services, need to have water, sewer, electrical, fiber optic, whatever pulled to the site. So it was really interesting at looking at what policies need to be in place to incentivize developers. The city is pretty progressive. It looked at, okay, well, what do we need to do to really jumpstart development of our existing brownfield sites to make our city great? Tell me a little bit about what it means to be a lead accredited professional. Yeah. So I think it was about 
2000, don't quote me on that. I think it was year 2000. Um, sustainability was a massive buzzword, really gaining momentum. And the U.S. Green Building Council came up with a way to really evaluate new development on a points-based system in terms of environmental impact. It's really a holistic way to look at, at development and not just from a construction standpoint, but from a livability standpoint. As you look at a building and its impact on its surroundings, mm-hmm. what are some factors that, that you view are important in evaluating that building? While I'm definitely interested in uh, where materials are sourced, you know, the type of construction techniques used and water efficiency, all those aspects. For me, um, I look more at a macro scale, and that is really uh, compatibility with surrounding land use. Is it appropriate for the site? So, for example, um, uh, part of the aspect of LEED is if I'm uh, helping design a new building that's an employment center, having it out on a greenfield site far often the exurbs doesn't make a lot of sense from a sustainability perspective in terms of transportation. Having something more centrally located makes a lot of sense. What's been really big in smart growth since probably say the early 90s is transit-oriented development or TODs. So what I would look at is more centralizing development around transit. So in Seattle, thank goodness, we finally have light rail. It's taken, I don't know how long, unfortunately, but hey, it's here, happy, pumped. So what I would look at is having density around those transit stops and making sure that we really build up, you know, we're paying millions upon millions of dollars to add light rail, really centralize development around these hubs where we up infrastructure, we up the capacity of, you know, the water, the sewer, the transportation, the pedestrian, the bikes, and really centralize density around these locations and maintain that investment. You know, we're spending, again, millions of dollars. So making sure we really put people where we are planning and making changes to infrastructure. As you look at a building's impact on its surrounding area, what are some ways that the construction or the the, the structure itself might affect the surrounding area that people may not consider unless they study it like yourself? So the the biggest thing I look at, again, I have a bent on my lens, and that's from a land use perspective, being a land use planner, is are the uses compatible? So I would look at would a high-rise apartment or condo building make sense right next to a commercial center, a transit center? Absolutely makes a lot of sense. There's the um, transit there, there's um, services, there's retail, um, makes a lot of sense. So land uses uh, compatibility is one of them. Um, the second would be is impact in terms of I'm placing, an, if it's a new structure, whatever footprint that structure is, is going to be impervious. So if it's impervious, it has to, the rainwater, stormwater runoff has to go somewhere. So say for example, uh, a new building on a greenfield site. When I say greenfield, I mean just never been built on. Previously, the water would percolate into the soil and recharge our aquifers. Or if you put a new building onto it, it becomes impervious. And then that load, that stormwater runoff that normally would have percolated into the soil then is put into our existing stormwater sewer system. So with every new development you have, 
you have to think about things of how is that going to impact our albeit aging infrastructure and does our infrastructure accommodate new development walk me through by the water being able to percolate through the the dirt why is that important Sure. That's, uh, it's very important to refresh our water, water table. But in addition to which, say you have an impervious surface, so whether it be um, concrete or a building, you know, a parking lot or a building, that water is then diverted to our storm drains. And the more volume and rate, so speed, of stormwater and our existing pipes. So our pipes were, gosh, I don't even know, depending on where you are in the city, they're a fixed, a fixed diameter. So you can overwork those, in which case a lot of areas in Seattle have combined storm and sanitary sewer, in which case that floods the system and then it floods our waterways. And we live in a beautiful area with tons of gorgeous water, Lake Washington, Puget Sound, and it contaminates our waterways. And are there any other ways that the construction or the presence of a new structure impacts the surrounding areas that maybe most people haven't thought of? Yeah. So uh, one thing that um, some people may not think about when a new development goes in, whether it's large or small, is no matter what, there has to be materials brought to the site as well as, in some cases, excavation. So dump trucks, excavating Soil, soil being put into other dump trucks, those going how many miles away to um, a fill site or a waste site or a surcharge site. So that process with excavation in addition to material delivery, whether it's, you know, concrete, you have water, sand, gravel, and the concrete mix all being pumped to a site. So really, there is a lot of intense construction vehicles, hauling away materials, bringing in materials that goes into a site uh, or a, a new development. For me, right now, it's very poignant is living by both um, the new stadium uh, light rail station as well as the Roosevelt light rail station. There's uh, constant, intense uh, construction vehicles, hauling material, bringing in material, and uh, it's going to be going on for a while. But the great thing is, is we're getting a huge, wonderful new light rail out of it. So um, it's all for the greater good. So there are, are several ways that people might consider adding density or adding more people to the city of Seattle. And one of them involves maybe tall high rises in some dense urban areas. Mm -hmm. Another one might be mid-rises, the, the, the five over two buildings, so seven-story buildings. Uh, another proposal underway is backyard cottages where mm -hmm. we increase density in the single-family residential neighborhoods. Can you talk about each of those, maybe one at a time, in terms of how well they perform on some of the things you discussed? Sure. So most efficient in terms of, you know, if from a lead perspective is looking at how can I get the most bang for the buck? So if I'm spending money, if I'm spending time, if I'm spending resources, if I'm creating traffic congestion, you know, having a material sourced and brought in excavation, putting extra burden on a transportation system with whatever I'm developing, whether that be bus or traffic or, uh, excuse me, car. Most bang for your buck is a high rise in a dense area that has planned for 
high density development. So in Seattle, you have transit oriented development, transit around, or excuse me, development around really the urban urban hubs. And that makes the most sense from an environmental perspective because it's an area that already has excellent bike, buses, and also now light rail. It, it also has more services, um, great walkability, retail accessibility, and housing. So it, it makes the most sense. So for example, a low density backyard cottage. So low density backyard cottage, I'm probably going to be get one, maybe two people there while the same effort, albeit a little, you know, a, a little bit more intense. I'm still going to have trucks driving to and from the site for excavation. I'm still going to have construction workers driving to and from for construction work. It makes more sense if I'm going to go to that effort to put that into a high density development. What are some of the drawbacks associated with the higher density, taller building? Yeah, so it all depends on whether or not what is actually built matches what the city planned for. So like I was talking about in the comprehensive plan and subsequent looking at upsizing your infrastructure, upsizing your sewer system, your water, your water mains, your electrical, upsizing your street capacity, whether it be it for cars or buses, etc. It all depends if what's actually built, what the developers wheeled and dealed to get from the city and um, have that approved if that's actually what the city had planned for and is able to accommodate. So sometimes it happens a little bit better than other times. Talk about the impervious surfaces and how the various forms of adding density might play into that. So if you take, um, I'm just going to use for ease of explanation, if you take, say, a 100 by 100 foot lot, okay, and I plan on putting a low density residential development there. Let's say maybe five people. So I'm creating an impervious area. That impervious area, I'm going to add whatever runoff that would be at whatever rate into the existing sanitary sewer, excuse me, stormwater sewer system in the city of Seattle versus the benefit. So if you take, you know, whatever that that volume is and divide it by five, five people, that's going to be a high rate of runoff per person. Whereas if I do a high density residential development there, let's just say 10 stories, let's just say maybe 30 people. Um, you divide whatever that runoff rate is divided by 30, it's going to decrease a lot less. So again, you get more density on that same 100 by 100 foot lot. It makes more sense to centralize it so you have less stormwater runoff per person. And what about the trade-off between the much taller buildings, maybe the high rises versus the mid rises? Yeah, you know, and and I'm I'm speaking a lot about high density residential where it makes sense to centralize it around transit-oriented development. And while that's very true, higher rise development is more compatible with closer into downtown. Whereas typically what happens is as you get farther out, it's a little bit more graduated depending upon the surrounding surrounding land use patterns. So what we typically look for and land use planners is a graduated effect. So we wouldn't necessarily want to go from, so it really depends on the surrounding land uses. So um, mid-rise makes more sense when you're closer to existing single-family residential development. Are there any other factors that should be taken into consideration when deciding between 
the various ways that we could add density to Seattle? Yeah. So one issue that's a primary concern for me as we look at density and increasing the housing stock in the city of Seattle, you know, everybody knows there's a major affordability crisis that has to be looked at and hopefully remedied in in thoughtful and well-studied ways. Something that is of grave concern to me is are we just looking at increasing housing stock by any method possible? Or are we also looking at what really makes Seattle special? What really makes our city something that maybe isn't so tangible? But what is that it factor, that livability factor, that neighborhood compatibility factor that makes Seattle so special that we wouldn't want to lose just if all we have in focus is increasing housing stock? And what is your opinion on what makes Seattle special that yeah. you wouldn't want to see lost? Boy, there's there's a lot of things. But I tell you what, I have been really blessed. We, my husband and I, my family live in a neighborhood that has people who have really invested in the neighborhood. And when I say invested, I mean getting to know your neighbors, taking care of your property, feeling a lot of pride in your home and pride in knowing your neighbors and pride in creating community and celebrating everyday life with your neighbors. That if you have development where people aren't invested, um, there's no intention to stay and really invest in your community. And when I say invest, I don't just mean monetarily. I mean of your time, of your energy, of your thoughts, of, you know, reaching out to your neighbors and building community with them. If you don't have that, it really erodes a city. And do you have any other further thoughts that help you evaluate how various proposals to add density, how they might work well and and impact the neighborhoods around them? So especially, you know, right now the city of Seattle is looking to really minimize the requirement for owners to occupy uh, rentals that they, when they create and develop backyard cottages And that's of grave, grave concern for me. If you don't require owners to occupy their residence and have a backyard cottage, it's just going to become a a rental property where it's people aren't going to be invested in that property, getting to know their neighbors. And that's something that's of grave concern to me. People who invest and stay in the city and believe in the city and want to see the best for a city. It's really important that we cherish that. And by not requiring owners to live there as well is is a huge detriment. As you look to the future of Seattle, what do you think the key issues are as they relate to land use planning and how would you personally choose to address those? To me, the key issue is taking a step back. Um, We have some major land use issues here in Seattle, especially in it Uh, when it comes to housing and affordability and equity and making sure that Seattle, I don't want to say maintains because it's already out of reach for many, many people, how we can maintain livability and affordability here in Seattle. And land use is directly tied to that. In terms of issues to address with that is, like I said, not getting myopic in the issue, not saying, okay, we need to just create as many housing units as possible, however possible, whatever way possible, even if that means uh, at the expense of what makes our city great, what makes our city so special, um, which is really community. All right, Teresa, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate your perspective. Thank you. You've now heard three expert perspectives on the sustainability and livability of three ways to add density to a city. 
Now I ask you, what kind of city do you want to live in? One with denser residential neighborhoods? One with an expanse of mid-rise buildings? Or one with density confined to high-rises and mid-rises near transit? Or do you want to put density wherever it can be created in a mix of all three? Have your voice be heard. Share your thoughts on this issue using hashtag SeattleDensity. Next week on the Seattle Growth Podcast, we will look at the effects of economic and population growth on our emergency services. You will hear from the Chief of the Fire Department, Harold Scoggins. There can be challenges, obviously, as if any area becomes more densely populated, that slows down our travel time on the streets. Um, it could create a few challenges on, um, you know, even going down some of the streets in the residential area. And you will hear from the Chief Operating Officer of the Seattle Police Department, Brian Maxey. The growth in the city increases and the traffic density gets, uh, gets tighter. It is harder for emergency vehicles to move about. I hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast in iTunes if you haven't already. Please leave a review. I would love to hear what you think. And you can check back on the website, seattlegrowthpodcast.com, for more updates.